Hello and welcome to The Wire, your independent national coverage of a current affairs right across Australia on Community and Indigenous Radio. I'm Mamina Shakur, coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. And today on the show where they need to be. Um, What we're seeing is that the bigger and bigger the social housing shortfall gets, the harder and harder it is for people with disability to find a secure place to live that actually meets their needs. Recent study finds only 6% of people with disabilities secure long-term housing amid the housing crisis. A beauty brand is set to plant trees in southwestern Australia aiming to combat climate change. And later today... You can see desperation in people's faces, like the prices of everything in Argentina, like you need to have like (laughs) a lot, a lot, a lot of pesos to buy for most basic goods. Argentina's new president, Javier Millet, is the new Trump-like libertarian. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. A recent study from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare reveals a concerning situation for people with disabilities, showing that only 6% of those facing homelessness or its risks have access to long-term housing they need. This comes at a time when demand for social housing is high and accessibility and affordability remain significant challenges, as highlighted by recent advocacy efforts from the Disability Royal Commission and NDIS Review. I spoke to Everybody's Home spokesperson May Aziza about how people with disabilities are being turned away from housing. Why are people with disabilities being turned away from housing? The reason people with disabilities are being turned away is because we don't have enough social housing for people with disability who really need it. We used to very strongly fund social housing in Australia and that was really important for people with disabilities, um, people who needed uh, affordable accommodation of any kind, but especially people with disabilities because the private market might not be where they need to be. Um, What we're seeing is that the bigger and bigger the social housing shortfall gets, the harder and harder it is for people with disability to find a secure place to live that actually meets their needs. And how has the number of people with um, disabilities seeking um, help for long-term housing changed over the past decade? It's gone up by hundreds of people. Now we've got uh, over 3,600 people seeking help and uh, more than 9 in 10 have actually been turned away just because there isn't the social housing that they need. What are the main reasons why um, people with disabilities seeking, um, are seeking assistance in housing? The reason people are seeking assistance is because there isn't the social housing that they need that used to invest in this kind of housing and it's not doing that anymore and people's needs just can't be met by the private rental market. And what challenges are people with disabilities facing in the current rental market? What we know is that it's really expensive to get a private rental and if you're someone who's on a disability support pension, there's basically nothing in the private rental market in most parts of the country that's affordable for you. Uh, The latest rental affordability snapshot from Anglicare Australia 
Australia, for example, shows that it's less than 1% of rentals advertised that are um, affordable for people on disability support pension, never mind if they're accessible. And that's the other issue with the private rental market. There aren't minimum rental standards around the country. Um, and uh, we've seen a lot of resistance to changing the building code to actually make the private rental market more accessible. But it's also really important that these homes are uh, affordable. It really is the government's responsibility to provide these homes. It's not just up to, um, you know, small-time private landlords. What urgent action should the government take to address this issue? We're echoing the calls that have been made by the Disability Royal Commission and the NDIS Review for a real boost to social housing, especially for people with disability. We also need to make sure that all of the social housing that we build over the next few decades is accessible because uh, what we've seen is a real, um, not just a shortfall in the number of social housing uh, dwellings overall, but also uh, a huge shortfall in the number that are accessible. So we need to make sure that everything that we're building from here on out is disability Disability, disability Advocacy friendly. Network Australia, Dana, advocates for people with disabilities, uniting and supporting independent advocacy organisations across Australia to promote inclusions, rights and values. I spoke to CEO of Dana, Jeff Smith, on the type of support needed for people with a disability to find long-term housing. And what kind of uh, support do people with disability need in in finding long-term housing? Oftentimes they need the technical support to uh, be able to help them to negotiate the system. Um, People with disability, of course, are much more likely to live in poverty than non-disabled people. And in that respect, disability can be both a cause of of poverty, rather. Disability can be a cause of poverty as well as a consequence of poverty. So they might need the technical help to negotiate their way through the system. Uh, For example, when you're talking about um, people with intellectual disability, there's very little support for people with intellectual disability to understand and navigate the complexities of finding a home. And of course, that is often, there are numerous complexities associated with that process. Combine that with the lack of housing options and low income security levels that are faced by people with an intellectual disability. That means that there's no real choice in many respects about the circumstances where they live and the circumstances underpinning who they live. And so by dint of those two factors, then people with intellectual disability are often grouped together in segregated settings like group homes, um, where you're much more likely to find violence and abuse uh, in, in those kind of closed settings. What more needs to be done, I guess, on a governmental level? Well, the federal government uh, needs to act urgently to build more social housing for people with disabilities. I guess that there's also, as both the Disability Royal Commission and the NDIS Review has found, there are some structural impediments to people with disability accessing those housing, uh, housing options. So what we really need to do is to prioritise people with disability in the whole policy and administrative framework that applies to affordable and social housing. 
That was CEO of Dana, Jeff Smith, speaking to The Wire. More than 60,000 trees will be planted in southwestern Australia with the support from one of the world's leading cosmetic companies, L'Oreal. The project's aim is to counter climate change, develop native forests and support economic self-determination of the Wujari Nyanga people. The Wires contributor from First Nations Media Australia, Janine Kelly, asked chairperson of Esperanza Lurak Native Title Aboriginal Corporation and Wujari Women, Gail Reynolds-Adamson, why a company like L'Oreal is concerned on planting trees in the area. Well, we um, started an entity called Rejuvenation Trees, uh, and it's a brand that was created by Entac and a partner, Data. And part of that, uh, the, the creating of that was to sell plant a tree uh, and other products in a unique way to look at carbon farming and carbon diversity. And, you know, that's a response, I suppose, to the climate change that we see happening in our country or across the world. How important is it to support the growth of trees? Well, certainly uh, one of the things that, as you're probably aware of, as First Nations people or Aboriginal people, is that caring for country is very important. And certainly through colonisation, we were prevented from doing this and moved off our country. And what we have seen from that is a degradation of land. And part of that is us coming back on country now, healing country and the planting of trees and especially the local species is very important for us to restore the health back to country. And that restoration of health of country also has a flow and effect to health of our mob or our people. To what extent is it a corporate social responsibility project? Certainly what you're finding uh, on a global level is um, companies are wanting to get involved involved in um, these types of, um, you know, carbon or regen agriculture as a way of offsetting or mitigating the carbon um, emissions that they have. And so, you know, this project that we started and certainly we're in partnership um, with L'Oreal is an important part of how do we look at the climate um, change of the future. And what will L'Oreal gain from it? I think there's obviously L'Oreal, like many partners, is about, you know, how they engage with the traditional owners and the lands in which they operate on. So their contribution um, of of about $200,000 every year for commencing for next year, um, the the part of their partnership is about diversity and the restoration of planting trees. We will be planting in that partnership around about 65,000 trees and part of that partnership with L'Oreal focuses on positive cultural change, um, social and economic change and it's also a a, a community initiative uh, led by our community and they're partnering with us. This rejuvenation tree project that we're talking about, even though we're supposed to be launching it next year, we've actually experienced a high demand for this at the moment. And L'Oreal is is the first of many partners that we're going to be partnering with. And we hope that L'Oreal, like many other corporates, will get on board and support Indigenous businesses into the future in this space. What kind of trees are involved in this in the planting of this project? Well, the, the plantation of this particular area here is all the native um, vegetation. And so what we're looking at is the country which we're looking at is a place called um, Karajanap. 
um, and the farm is next to an entity called Peak Charles, and it covers uh, an area which we know has been aware enough, um, cultural corridor, and these cultural corridors are regions of the Wajari country and um, that tie together an e ecological process, both human and non-human. It's our heritage, it's our stories, our song lines, all of this was their pre-European settlement. So all of the surrounding regions around the farm is where we're collecting our seed from. So we're encouraging employment outcomes to commence um, through this process by supporting the, the commencement of seed, um, seed collection from the local community. So these corridors that we have um, and our people would have traversed during this time, you know, today what we're looking with archaeological evidence, it actually um, shows and paints a picture of a vibrant family, lively region, diverse, in, in the region as far as the, uh, the ecosystem, um, people hunting and camping and yarning and singing and generally, you know, our cultural practices were carried out during this area. So from the European settlement, as you're probably aware, across the whole of Australia, the fragmentation of our country and a the clearing of it meant that, you know, we're, we're left with these, these areas now that are under stress. And what we're trying to do is restore that with the local seeds in the local area and collection done by local people. Wujjari women Gail Reynolds-Adamson from the Esperance Dularak Native Title Aboriginal Corporation there with the First Nations Media Australia's Janine Kelly. A new report from the Australian Stroke Clinical Registry found out hospitals are improving with stroke care. While it's a good step forward, more needs to be done, particularly in regional hospitals and clinics. The report also included new targets to reduce damage from patients suffering from a stroke. The why is Eduardo Jordan asked data custodian from the Australian Stroke Clinical Registry for the Flory Institute, Professor Dominique Cadillac, why stroke care is not provided equally across the country. So what we find is that we have recommendations for patients to get treated, especially in the first hours after stroke, and then after that, that really critical stage at the beginning of a stroke, then they get access to stroke unit care, which is staffed by specialist teams of health professionals, doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, speech pathologists. And all these people are essential, and that's because stroke affects the body in lots of different ways. When the part of the brain that's damaged, it can affect people's ability to speak, their ability to think, but also use their arms or legs. So what we need to do is make sure people get into hospital early, that they get treated if they're eligible for treatment. And what we're finding is that not all hospitals are geared up uh, to deliver those therapies fast. Now, there are various reasons. So there can be system barriers. There can be issues around bed availability. There can be issues around education and training of the health workforce in stroke. But another important thing is public awareness. So according to the report, are there population sectors who are more at disadvantage on receiving a stroke care? If you live in regional or rural areas, we don't tend to have the same level of specialist access available. And we have found in our report that the care quality does differ, in particular for the timeliness of receiving certain treatments, but also in being managed in a dedicated stroke unit. 
we're very similar between urban and regional hospitals. In, includes the discharge processes, so making sure people are discharged on, home on medications that would prevent another stroke. But it's really that early treatment time. So initiatives that different state governments have been implementing and supporting include telemedicine services. And if hospitals are part of the stroke program, that means that you know the doctors and nurses in those emergency departments, when someone comes in with suspected stroke, can contact a stroke neurologist and they can help them work out the diagnosis and also the treatment pathway. Now, what are the national targets this report highlights to implement across the country? So we have seen in our report, we highlighted that since 2017, despite the COVID pandemic causing, you know, challenges within hospitals, that we really haven't been able to augment or improve our overall national quality standards for stroke, especially around those early treatments that we want to deliver and access to stroke units. So these national targets, we've come together, the Australian Stroke Coalition, so that includes the Australian New Zealand Stroke Organisation and the Stroke Foundation with our other lead organisations. So what we want to do is make sure that we can deliver care within 60 minutes if it's to be, someone is to be delivered with clot-dissolving drugs or if they arrive at hospital and they're eligible to have the clot retrieved using a surgical procedure, that that would happen within 30 minutes of that um, door, what we call a daughter puncture time. So they arrive at the door of the hospital and then within um, 30 minutes they're having the procedure done. Now, besides hospitals implementing these targets, how can we get prepared to quickly get someone into stroke care? If you think you're having a stroke, it is really important just to call an ambulance. So we have what's called the FAST campaign, and the FAST campaign refers to face, speech and time. So if someone's experiencing a stroke, often their face or half of their face might droop. This means if they try to smile, they might not have a full smile. Half of their face won't work. They might have weakness, tingling. They might not be able to write their name or sign their name. They might not be able to pick up a cup. They might have difficulty with their speech, so they could be slurring their words. They might cough because they're choking on their saliva. What's essential is if any of these symptoms or other symptoms of stroke are occurring, that they call an ambulance because time is of the essence. Essence, As I said, it's the, the sooner you can get treatment and looked after, be looked after by a stroke-capable hospital, the better chance you have of walking out. There is a lot that people can do to also avoid a stroke, so making sure that if they've got high blood pressure, they're managing that, making sure that their diabetes is kept in check, if they're smokers, if they can give up smoking, that will go a long way to helping avoid a stroke, which is, you know, a leading cause of death and major cause of adult disability in this country. Professor Dominique Cadillac from the Flory Institute there speaking with Eduardo Jordan. Argentina has just elected a new president. Javier Millet now takes up residence in the presidential pink house called Casa Rosada. Millet defeated the left-wing candidate Sergio Massa, anarcho-capitalist and far-right libertarian, has promised a wide-scale change that could send Argentina's social and economic world upside down.
Dr. Flavia Bellini Zimmerman, lecturer of political science and international relations at the University of Western Australia, explains. Who is Javier Milei and how did he end up as president of Argentina? Well, Javier Milei, he is an economist and he claims to be a libertarian. So um, economic libertarians, they believe that we should have minimal intervention from the state. Argentina is going through hyperinflation, uh, a very dramatic, I would say, economic situation. I even had the opportunity to go to Argentina this year uh, for for work. And you can see desperation in people's faces, like the prices of everything in Argentina, like you need to have like (laughs) a lot, a lot, a lot of pesos to buy for most basic goods. So desperate situations lead to desperate measures. I think that's how we can explain how Javier Millet gets elected. Millet has promised many radical reforms, including his dollarization plan and eliminating the central bank. Do you believe this is achievable or are these plans just far too radical to turn into reality? That's an excellent question, and it's interesting if we look at countries which dollarize their economies. Uh, I mean, examples of those countries are Zimbabwe and Panama, and I don't think these are thriving countries, right? So what Javier Millet wants to do is not impossible to be implemented, but the, the big question mark is, is this going to bring Argentina to a position where they can enjoy economic prosperity, the Argentinian economy will completely lose its independence. And that's another big problem. So the Argentinian economy will be fully attached to economic policies in the United States. So first implication is even a matter of identity. Like countries are trying to become more independent from the American dollar. And Millet is going against the curse of history. He wants Argentina to become more dependent on the American dollar. If there, there is, a, 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 let's say, instability or a crisis in America, it would affect directly Argentina. I mean, in my view, uh, completely absurd view of abolishing the central bank. He believes that economic policies in Argentina just don't work. So it's better to give up, in my view, part of your sovereignty in the sense that they will not be fully deciding the direction that uh, the economy will take regarding um, their own domestic issues, it is just going to be connected with the US dollar and American economic policy. He has also refused to work with China and Brazil. As president, surely he can't (laughs) ignore the opportunity to work with such heavy hitters. Well, when we talk about Javier Millet, we are talking about El Loco, someone (laughs) who everyone labels 
It's crazy. So we are not talking about people who are able to think rationally. Javier Millet regards Brazil as a communist country. Brazil is everything but a communist country, which demonstrates that he doesn't fully understand what diplomatic relations are. Because if you cut diplomatic ties, you cannot cut diplomatic ties with a particular country and still trade with them. Even though populism and indeed right-wing populism is nothing new in Latin America, but do you think that with Malay's election, this will... That was Gabriel D'Angelo speaking to Dr. Flavia Bellini-Zimmerman, lecturer of political science and international relations at the University of Western Australia. And unfortunately, that is the end of our show. Thanks so much for listening wherever you are in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between community radio stations 3ZZZ in Melbourne, 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane. With the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Community Radio Network. Check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Wurundjeri people of the Kula Nations where this program has been produced. And we pay our respects to the Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. I'm Amina Shakur coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.